Hello Alex, I'm with you again for a special off-campus edition of The Constitutional uh, with a special off-campus member of the ANU College of Law. I'm walking from the Canberra Convention Centre, which is basically on Constitution Avenue, with Senior Lecturer Dr Liz Curran, who teaches the Graduate Diploma of Legal Practice out of Melbourne. And Liz is in Canberra to talk at the National Conference of Community Legal Centres about her research into health justice partnerships, an emerging area of frontline law and one that Liz is helping to grow worldwide. So let's get walking. Liz, is this a bit of a welcome back to Canberra? You're a, you're yes, a... yes. I, I came to Canberra um, beginning of 2011. It was in the days when um, we had our first ever female Prime Minister, Julia Gillard, and I came to Canberra because I have always done uh, work in public policy. And although I'm a practising lawyer, I see a lot of clients and often their problems, um, they signify a trend. And so where the laws are unfair or unjust, I've always had the view that we need to look for those trends. And if we can solve the problem at its core, and that's been my philosophy. And so I've always been involved and engaged with, um, as much as I can, being informed by real-life case law and casework with clients and then trying to actually solve the problems and if laws are ineffective or problematic, to try and actually solve them so that people don't have the unnecessary stress and anxiety and to also make good policy because I mean as I was just hearing with this terrible cashless card that sounds like another version of apartheid at one of the sessions I've just come out of the way in which it's been played out and how poorly it's been designed it's having all sorts of ramifications for example some supermarkets they have the ATM for the people with the cashless card they're all Aboriginal and then the white people go to the other one where it's not so it's sort of a form of segregation so it's that sort of thing so what I try and do is try and inform policymakers about how to improve the law and um, often that gets met with a bit of resistance because they see it as criticism rather than uh, my obligations as a practicing lawyer to improve confidence in the legal system and the integrity of that legal system. I suppose in a way that introduction there Liz about your passion you just poured into that tells us um, exactly where you're coming from but can we just go back to why you decided to study law? Was there a, a moment? Yeah, it's a funny thing. I thought I started studying law because I wanted to do effectively the work I've ended up doing, which was I was committed to social justice. And I, I had a real strong sense when I was growing up. My brother had an um, intellectual disability and my mother was a single mum with five kids. And I had a real sense of uh, how we were treated and even at my own school, which was a Catholic girls' school, I always felt the sense of injustice about, you know, being bullied because my brother had an intellectual disability or he'd be teased. So I wanted to do something to, I guess, to bring about social justice. And I did think about journalism because I was used to love today. Um, not what's the show on the ABC? This day tonight. This day tonight. Bill Peach. <laughs> that's it. That's it. And so I thought initially I thought I wanted to be a journalist, and then I thought I wanted to be a park ranger. Then I auditioned for NIDA and got in, but was told I was too young. Um, so I went to counselling and they said, well, why don't you go to um, do arts law? It's a good degree, you've got the grades, do it. So I did it. And then I thought, all right, I can do social justice this way. And then what happened was, um, well, I started doing law and it was all about getting articles back in those days and everybody had to go to a commercial law firm. And you know, So I ended up in a commercial law firm um, a boutique commercial law firm 
and I found it really hard because I'll be thinking, hey, on a minute, why am I saving you five million when you've already got too many millions? And there are a whole lot of people out there with nothing. So I was really challenged by it. And then I wanted to leave there. And then a, a consultant talked me out of it. She said, try another law firm. So I went to another commercial law firm in Melbourne and hated it. <laughs> And so I thought, oh, and in fact, I was asked to do something highly unethical and wrong and unlawful. And the senior partner said if I didn't do it, you know, there'd be consequences. I went away, I talked to a barrister. He said, if you do it, it's unlawful, Liz, you can't be anywhere near it. You either come up with a different strategy, which we did together. Then the guy said, no, I'm giving you an order. You have to follow it. And I said, well, all right, that's fine. Here's my resignation. So I walked, I didn't have a job didn't have enough money to pay the rent. I went into Myers. My girlfriend who worked there got me a job in Myers. Then I basically thought about it and thought, I hate the law, don't like the law. And so I went and did a teaching qualification because I tutored in college and people said I was good at teaching. While I was doing that course, I started volunteering at St Kilda Legal Service. And that was my aha moment. I suddenly went, oh... This is the sort of law that I thought law was all about. It can help people. And I was helping people. My transformative moment, I guess, in my legal career, that came in Warrnambool, where I was taken under, and I can't say his name because he's passed away now, I was taken under the wing of an elder Uncle B, and he, he transformed me as a junior lawyer, and that's when I really got my passion for social justice. How often do you ask your students that question about how many of you want to do law because you want to make a difference? We, we teach, we're a capstone subject at the end of the course. Ours is where they've graduated from law and this is the qualification they need to practice. So they're just about to be admitted to practice before we let them loose on the community. And um, part of the way the course operates is one of the first key questions we ask them is, what are your values? What's important to you? what matters before we even ask them about what they see their role as a lawyer and they often talk about that they want to make a difference, that they want to problem solve and then we have the conversation about how they feel that that's been drilled out of them because law, a lot of law all over the world is taught by case law and by legislative analysis. So if you don't have the interpersonal skills and the communication skills and you don't understand about emotions and you don't understand about trauma and you don't know how to manage client expectations then you're not going to be an effective lawyer and that's what we're trying to teach them at ANU is the real world is not what you've been looking at. The real world is actually people coming in with problems. So how you can actually manage that? And they go, oh! <laughs> but if someone, if one of your students did bravely put up their hand and say, well, actually, you know, I've done well at school, I want to do law because I know it'll provide me with a comfortable life and yes, I will solve some problems for people, isn't that enough? Yeah, well, many of them do, and that's their choice. But what I guess we try and do is expose them to an array of options. And also the reality of the law in the 21st century is that the law's changing. So unless they've had some volunteer law, which they get through the program, they get legal practice experience, and then they have to actually integrate that into their learnings and understandings of what it is to be a legal professional. But a lot of them actually have a very unrealistic idea of what a lawyer is. It comes from watching American television. And so in fairness to them, so they don't burn out, it's important that they understand that some of their understandings of what practice is going to be like is actually not what it really is like, and so we need to build their resilience. And a really interesting area that you're working on, I think HJPs, is that, yes, is that right? Health justice. It's really, I'm 
I don't want to call it health justice partnerships. It, that's what's sort of taking off. They're called multidisciplinary partnerships or interdisciplinary partnerships, one of which is what is called a health partnership. So I'd say that's a subset. The research that we've had now, the first time ever we've had some definitive Australia-wide research, which was done in 2012, said that roughly on a conservative estimate of about 86% of Australians who were vulnerable and disadvantaged weren't actually accessing legal help with their problems that were capable of a legal solution. Now a lot of the people think that a legal problem is family law or criminal law and so that's a big barrier. So these are people who have debts, who have poor substandard housing, who are cut off their Centrelink payments, who experience discrimination. So there are a whole raft of things that are capable of a legal solution. Consumer problems. We have consumer protection laws and most people don't actually understand that. They can do. They don't have to stand by this stupid plan that was missold to them. They can actually get out of it. I've got clients who've had an intellectual disability and been told by their case manager that they need a mobile phone so their case manager can talk to them and when they get panic or get out of control they can actually ring the caseworker on the phone so that the, all they've said is go and buy a simple phone that has a phone and they get talked into in the telco shop buying a phone that does everything but can't work as a phone now that's a breach it's not fit for purpose they disclose the purpose so they don't have to stay in the plan they don't even have to keep the phone so there's a broad range of problems that are capable of a legal solution. And when you're vulnerable and disadvantaged, the research tells us that you're not only likely to have one legal problem, but multiple and cascading problems. And in the Bendigo research that I did uh, over three years, 91% of the clients that I interviewed had between 7 to 10 legal problems. So they didn't just have one, and they had not seen a lawyer but for the health justice partnership. So the idea of multidisciplinary practice is instead of lawyers sitting in their office waiting for someone to firstly identify a problem as a legal problem and then find their way to the lawyer who probably they're scared of because they think I have a previous poor experience of a lawyer or I have to pay them money they won't go. This sort of model is basically going to where the clients are likely to turn for help and the other thing is that we now know from the research that people who are vulnerable and disadvantaged and have multiple legal problems and are likely to are more likely to turn to their trusted health or allied health professional or they're likely to turn to a teacher or you know preschool early childhood maternal and child health nurse so the idea is we go to where those clients are likely to turn and the other dimension is that we build the capacity and work collaboratively with the non-legal professionals and assist them and support them and the big thing is something we call legal secondary consultation is where we educate the health or non-health provider to be able to identify the range of things that are capable of a legal solution so and often they go oh my god I didn't know you can help with that you're kidding and to be able to pick up the phone or have a quick consultation knock on your door and come in and say Liz I've got a young boy who's defecating his pants he won't tell his parents he's got a huge mobile phone debt can you help him out yes I can because the doctor or the nurse the kid trusts them then I get the borrowed trust so even though I'm a lawyer they'll say look Liz is Liz is okay come and see Liz and then they may even stay in the room or sort through the ethical issues of that and then the kid who would otherwise not get to us gets help. 
And that's the perfect example of the linkages there from school to doctor that's to the right. lawyer, because that's a real case, isn't it? That's wasn't right. it? Yes, yes, that was happened to me in practice. And so once I did that, the doctor was like, oh my God, you're amazing. And then he went back to the rest of the team and said, we've got to start doing this. So it's all about trust and confidence. It takes a certain type of lawyer. You've got to be personable. You've got to be nice. goes back to what I was saying before. It's about training lawyers to have the interpersonal and communication skills, not to be stuffy, hierarchical, talking in legal jargon, but to be down to earth and, and still do their job effectively, but be humane. So how far, how far has it gone? Well, I should say what I try and do is I identify a gap and then I see if there's an evidence base that I can build of good and effective practice and that where the research comes in and complements the practice and the education. So... I knew it worked, but I needed to gather the evidence. And then I was approached by a fellow who'd been to the United States where they have lots of what they call medical legal partnerships over there. And he'd studied them and come back. And he knew that I'd worked for 10 years in a health setting. And I'd written on this. And all of a sudden, I got asked if I would do this evidence-based evaluation. I jumped at it. And then slowly but surely, the Legal Services Board of Victoria brought me in to run uh, facilitated workshops. They had funded, they had a theme of health justice partnerships and funded uh, what effectively were 16 agencies, eight partnerships. And so since I think the end of 2014, I've been running quarterly workshops and slowly they've been growing. And then we did a major effort. I worked with some policy makers in the, the office of women and Michaela Cash's office. And there was severe cuts, cuts being announced, including to some of the funded health justice partnerships. Uh, the one at the um, Royal Melbourne Women's Hospital, which was in the sexual assault unit working with victims of sexual assault, was really, really effective and had been positively evaluated by Melbourne University. That was looking at possibly losing its funding and so we did a lot of work it took a lot of lobbying and and we reversed I mean there were a lot of people working together Women's Legal Service Victoria and I introduced them to various people in at Parliament House and they came up and they had conversations and then they reversed the cuts and that was the first announcement that must have been a good day it was a good day when um, Malcolm Turnbull reversed the cuts and it's just been a recent campaign by legal aid and legal centres and I've been involved in writing up what the implications of the further cuts that Senator Brandis the Attorney General was planning on bringing in in the last budget and because of the evidence base it makes it really really hard the beauty of evidence-based research which is based on real-life field research where you talk to people you do surveys you do in-depth interviews you do focus groups and you include the voiceless the people who've never been asked these questions is that it's powerful mm. and so what we know is that health justice partnerships are working and they're hard they rely on relationships, they take time. Governments don't fund relationships. Some of the governments sort of say, all right, we're going to tell everybody now they have to get on and collaborate. Well, in a competitive tendering environment, well, that's rubbish. It's not going to work. But if it's organic and it's flexible and responsive and people build the relationships of trust, they work. If it's rushed, if it's thought through poorly, it doesn't work. One of the surprising and unanticipated results of the Bendigo study and some other studies that I've done since, I'm speaking tomorrow about a wonderful project targeting at-risk vulnerable youth, particularly pregnant Aboriginal 
mums um, because they're highly at risk of family violence and it's a project between the Flexible Learning Centre in Wodonga and then the Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation in Albury and also a NISE, which is a homeless drug and alcohol mental health thing for youth. So the lawyers are going and working with those three agencies. What a breakthrough. It's fantastic. It's absolutely marvellous. And you're working on this in the UK, I believe, too? Yeah, in the University of Portsmouth. We're starting an interdisciplinary pilot program where students of law and nursing will be studying in their undergraduate course certain basic skills and then over the series of year they can then they all have to have a clinical experience and the clinic will not be a legal clinic it will be a joint health legal clinic so this is digging down another layer isn't it the it's... idea is and why I'm so passionate and excited about it is one of the findings that came out of the Bendigo study was that of the non-legal professionals that I interviewed and there were quite a number a large group I asked them why previously before the Health Justice Partnership, why is it that they didn't? And I thought they'd say money, uh, didn't know they were legal issues. They said those, but they said poor previous experiences of lawyers. I'm not going to hand over my vulnerable client that I have a duty of care to if I think they're going to be more damaged by the legal system and they're going to be set back in their health and social issues. So that was a, a, a real revelation. Of the clients that I interviewed, About 45% said that the reason that they hadn't come to a lawyer with the current problem that they were seeing the lawyer about through the Health Justice Partnership was because of poor previous experience of lawyers. And they said the lawyers were judgmental, they didn't listen, they told them what to do, they didn't understand their circumstances, they spoke in legal jargon, they were intimidating and they didn't feel safe. I had an Aboriginal guy and he pulled out of his pocket about, I'd say, 50 lawyer cards. And he said... This is how I manage the police. I walk around town and whenever they say they're going to do something to me, I just pull out the cards. But do you think, if you give me a card, do you think I'm seriously going to go to some office where I'll probably be judged down the road? He said, so I just collect the cards and I try and use them to get the police to back off. He said, so the first time... There's some old wisdom there, isn't there? (laughs) He said, so the first time I've ever come to a lawyer was you having your lawyer who I observe, and the young people said they watched the lawyer for six months and they just watch how the lawyer interacts before they come near them. It takes time. You've talked about the, the nursing and, and legal students there together. Is this whole concept of health justice partnerships also going to be now you know, a crucial part of any legal education? No. no. Um, it's this early days. I mean, the other thing is I went to Copenhagen last year and they've started up one in uh, uh, the Velma Centre there. Uh, has started as a result of the workshop, um, was looking at starting one in the cancer ward in one of the large hospitals. So in the United States, they're ahead of the game there. They've got quite a few, I think 246 medical legal partnerships. But this is not just health justice partnerships. You can have these just go to where the people are likely to turn and build the relationships. So there's a couple in really um, disadvantaged schools in Melbourne and Adelaide that are starting up. So, you know, there's a lot of models. I'd like to see some in mental health services more. Women's refuges? Yeah, women's refuges. Um, this, like, we've already got some in the, the Royal Women's Hospital and stuff like that. So, yeah, I'd like to see, because that's where they turn up. That's where they present. They've got lots of issues around housing and Centrelink and kids in school. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot mushrooming up all over Australia now. I just, I'm concerned at the moment that people who haven't, if you like, been on the journey with me see it as a way of getting funding. And I'd like to caution people, this is not, 
about funding, this is about effective legal services and it's hard work and relationships of trust take time. A classic example is um, a lot of them say, oh, look, we, we've been there for six months and no one's referred a client to us, so we're actually reducing our hours. And I put that to the health professionals and they say, well, they stay in their office, they don't come out, they don't talk to us, they don't come and have lunch with us. And if they're not getting clients in the six months they're sitting in their office, they could actually be doing joint sessions with us for the young people where they see them visible and they think, oh, oh God, they're a lawyer. Oh, they're not my... Oh, I might go and see them. Breaking down the barriers and doing that work. Just to finish up, Dr yeah. Liz Current, you were bound to end up with a project like this, weren't you? It's, it's kind of the whole reason you're in law. Yeah, yeah. But you see, my other thing, Alex, is that I tend to look for gaps. So, like, I've done a lot of research. I make all my research available on SSRN, as long as there's attribution, which is a bit of an issue because a lot of my work has been used and... My tools Tell journalists about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But um, it's there. So what I've always tended to do is to look at where the gaps are. So I've built a body of evidence and I've shared it and I sort of take the attitude now that it's up to other people now to take it. And it's been used. Mm. It's been used clearly in public policy, in the family violence space. It will be used again. I've got a number of projects internationally. My next step in that space is I want to do some work in developing countries because I also work for a humanitarian organisation for about nine months and I think this empowerment model, this capacity building, there are a lot of remote maternal and child health nurses in the Philippines, well I don't know about the Philippines now given the government there, but in different countries where they have a very skeletal service but perhaps by introducing and working collaboratively we can extend the service further and get more change. So I'd like to look at other countries. I'm doing a lot of projects in Indigenous services and that's a passion so that's important. That comes from Uncle B and I'll never let, I'll never lose that. But I also, I really want to find other ways where there are voiceless people with no voices who aren't being heard and find ways I can bring justice to them. So I'm actually sort of in some senses, I'm still in the health justice partnership, multidisciplinary partnership space, but I'm now looking to where the next gap is and where there needs to be an evidence base to build on that so that we can keep the conversations going. But I believe now the next step is for new approaches to lawyering. Um, the court systems are problematic and only really people with money can really use them and they're quite traumatising and damaging. So I want to encourage problem solving and new ways of lawyering that actually bring about solutions that are appropriate for everybody in the conversation and don't sort of marginalise people. And, and, and just to sum up, what would that look like, that new way of lawyering? I don't know. I think it's a blend of a whole lot of different approaches. I think the Health Justice Partnership stream or the multidisciplinary practice changing the way that law students and nursing students perceive and see each other, enhancing and developing their interpersonal and reflective skills. That's one piece of the jigsaw. So I'm doing some work in that space in the legal education research that I do. I also want to look more at, there's a lot of harm that's caused by trauma and I want to look at different ways that we can actually work with people who've been through great and deep trauma because trauma affects behaviour and so people are judged on their behaviour and it's, it's an awful thing. Mm. We're filling up our prisons and we've got people who are homeless and have nowhere to go, no housing, no employment, no hope. So when I find a way of collaborative lawyering that effectively, the, the one of the key themes that all the people that I've interviewed through all of my research including people from vulnerable and, and marginalised communities is that if they have hope then they can keep going and so I want to find ways that the legal profession can do things differently 
I think we're now the only Western country without a human rights framework federally. We've had huge, huge, overwhelming numbers of the public saying that they feel our human rights are poorly protected and that we need something more such as a legislative framework and they've got the same numbers of politicians who say we don't need it. So there's a clear disconnect between what our politicians think we need and what we say we need. And the politicians, I'm sorry, they are disconnected and my work is about telling the stories and providing forums for the people who have no say. So it needs to change. I'm glad you got talked back into going back into law, Dr Liz Curran. Thank you so much oh, for a, a lovely time walking and standing in the sun. Thank you.